All right, so um, we have been preaching through uh, 2 Corinthians, and uh, today we're in chapter 12. This is page 6 of your bulletin, so let me uh, pray for the reading of God's Word. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for this chance to gather together. We thank you that you are uh, the Holy One, the King of Kings forever. And uh, we pray, Father, that as you've given us your word, it is no small thing. Um, it is your very word to us, and help us to take it as, as such. Uh, Lord, work through your word, the power of your word, to change our hearts and our lives. Help us to take it seriously, to meditate on it, um, to enact what you call us to through your word in our lives. Uh, to love people the way that you've loved us. Um, change us. Uh, through this word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> All right, Second Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 10. Starting in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body... I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man is caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. So I started working uh, when I was 14 years old at a local pharmacy near my parents' house. And um, I had a bunch of part-time jobs as a child and the years I was a student. But there was always one question I would get asked during an interview when I moved from different summer jobs to different summer jobs. And that question was, what are your weaknesses? What are your weaknesses? I'm sure you've been asked that in an interview before. I always felt like it was a trick question. Like, are you really asking me to tell you my weaknesses so I don't get, to get this job? In fact, I remember a high school a counselor teaching us about job interviews and the counselor saying, you really want to put your, you know, your best self forward in that interview, present the best version of yourself. So all that to say, the question of weaknesses in an interview, it never made a lot of sense to me. But on the other hand, I always felt uh, strange promoting myself in an interview. I felt equally odd telling the employer all these great, wonderful things about myself. 
You know, um, Americans, uh, particularly Pittsburghers, were raised in a society that values strength, determination, and grit. We're a steel city. And I was raised that way. I was raised in Pittsburgh, and it's in my blood. And for followers of Jesus, according to Paul, it actually poses a problem. I'd argue that not just Pittsburghers, but all people struggle with this temptation to boast in our strengths. To put our strengths forward and to hide our weaknesses. And the Apostle Paul says, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had a completely different view of weakness. He views weakness as just one more way that God works to reveal his power and his strength. Paul views weakness through the lens of God's providence, God providing for us. Weakness is one more way God provides for his children. Now, it sounds counterintuitive. It goes against our culture, uh, but let's look at it. Um, So there's three points. We're going to look at, first, humble boasting, second, the saving thorn, and third, powerful weakness. So let's look at humble boasting. Um, So let's just begin with a bit of background. Uh, John preached on a lot last week, but I remember our sermons um, from Corinthians in chapters 10 to 11, we heard that Paul is writing to a particularly rebellious minority. Um, It's a sect of, uh, he's writing against a sect of super apostles. Uh, These are false teachers that have slithered out of the sewer. In chapters 10 and 11, Paul vehemently attacks the boasting of these super apostles. In chapter 11, 5, Paul says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. And then eleven thirteen, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So I don't have time, obviously, to read all of chapters 10 and 11 to you. But if you were to read them, you would find that Paul spills a significant amount of ink on boasting. Paul uses a a literary tool called satire, where he speaks in these chapters in the way that the super apostles might speak. But he acknowledges this is satire. For example, 1121, Paul says, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Then 1130, Paul leaves the satire and he says, if I must boast, I will boast of my weaknesses. And that's why we get this strange language in the beginning of our text. When Paul says, I must go on boasting, that there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul's making a a blow at these uh, super apostles. He's essentially saying... You know, you super apostles, you think you're something because of your fake stories and your fake righteousness and your pretend holiness. You know, I've had revelations. I've had visions. Verse 4. I've heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. I've seen paradise. I've been raised up into the air. Amazing things have happened to me. And they mean absolutely nothing. Nothing. What I will boast in, says Paul, the only thing I will boast in, are my weaknesses. And this is, by the way, how you distinguish a false teacher. Do they boast in Christ or in their strength? These super apostles boasted in their strength. 
Now, how do I know that the man Paul speaks of who got caught up into the third heavens is Paul? Well, just two verses later in verse 7, he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So Paul uh, saw some things. He experienced some things. He had revelations. He had visions. Remember the Damascus Road. He encountered Jesus himself, and he says it's all nothing. It's nothing. Could it really be nothing, Paul? If you, you, if you and I saw heaven, I'm sure that you would probably go out and write a book and go on a speaking circuit. You'd be shouting it from the rooftops. Nothing? Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. So first Paul answers it. Verse 6, he says, That no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul's making less of himself in order to make more of Christ. He says there's only one man's opinion that should really matter to you. So much that every other opinion is like an anthill compared to a mountain. And that opinion, that word, is Jesus' word for you. Paul doesn't want anyone to get caught up in the fact that he saw Jesus. That he had visions, that he had these revelations. That God spoke to him. I don't know about you, but I have never had a face-to-face audible conversation with God. But Paul did. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 23. But instead, Paul magnifies God's word to you. So I heard a preacher explain it this way. He said, imagine that you had um, a vision of God or a revelation or a sign from heaven. So it's here today, it's, you know, maybe it lasts five minutes, then it's gone tomorrow. Would it change your life? Sure, it might for a time. But then as the years goes by, what happens? Well, memories fade, life gets in the way, doubts creep in. So what is a better option? Well, what if God was speaking to you all the time? What if even he wrote his words down for you? What if he gave his very word to you forever? What if scripture is not a worst option, but the best option? So that's the first. But the second reason Paul says all these revelations are nothing is because the only thing worth boasting in is his weakness. Verse 9, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The language in the Greek is literally that the power of Christ may uh, pitch its tent upon me or tabernacle with me. May dwell with me. The only person Paul wants to please is Jesus. And I'll, uh, I'll give you a story to illustrate this. When my son was um, two years old, uh, I have this memory that when uh, anyone would clap, he would cry. It's just, I don't know, it scared him. So many of you might remember this. This was Elisha that... We would do the pastor's appreciation. We all have to get up on stage and they'd clap for us. And Elisha would just burst into tears. Um, so I think he felt overwhelmed. But I remember that when I would clap for him, his eyes would light up, get a big smile on his face. And I remember we had this little uh, kid slide. And uh, I'd say, Elisha, go down the slide and I'll clap for you. He'd get his little two-year-old body up in the slide and slide down and I'd clap for him and say, yay, Elisha. He'd smile. We'd do it again and again, over and over. 
Brothers and sisters, as we think about uh, God providing for us, God providing for you and for me as he did for the Apostle Paul, he doesn't just provide things. He provides a security and an identity, a father cheering on his son. He provides an affirmation that should only be found in him and in no other man. Not a pastor, not a family member, not a celebrity, not a favorite theologian. Paul says, not even an apostle of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus delights over you? Do you run to him when you feel insecure? Do you let his word wash over you? Just soaking in his love for you. Paul goes out of his way to push us away from Paul and towards the living God. Where in your life do you run to other things rather than God's affirming word for affirmation? Where do you run for acceptance, for security, for truth, for love, for identity? And what's amazing is that Paul is aware of this temptation in his own heart. Imagine being Paul for a second, literally called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You get to have God speak through you to write God's word, a large section of the Bible. It would be easy to become conceited. So this brings us to our next point, Paul's saving thorn. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. A few points on the thorn. Um, There's generally three accepted views of what the thorn is. Uh, The first is that the thorn is literally an ailment uh, in his flesh, something physically wrong with Paul. Theologian Charles Hodge took this view. And certainly physical ailments can be very humbling. The second view is taken by Calvin. Calvin reminds us that the flesh is often a synonym um, Paul uses for man's sinful nature. So a thorn in the flesh could be Paul struggling with a particular weakness of faith or sin or temptation. The third view is that the thorn is literally a demonic spirit that oppresses Paul. As Paul says, it's a messenger of Satan. Um, I particularly lean towards the first and the second view, uh, either a physical ailment or a temptation. But frankly, I don't think it matters entirely for the point that Paul's making. So I want to point something out to you I hadn't seen before reading this text. In verse 8, Paul pleads three times for the thorn to leave, but God answers verse 9, no, it's steady. God is the one keeping the thorn there even using a messenger of Satan for the good purpose of keeping Paul from conceit and pride. So let me say it again if you didn't hear it. God is using evil for his good purposes. So we consider uh, God providing, that is one of the ways that God provides for us. Now our confession goes out of its way to say that God is not the author of sin. Just because God is redeeming what is evil by using evil does not mean that God is causing us to sin. So I don't want to confuse things. But what is clear is that God can even use the uh, one, evil around us, two, the brokenness of the world, like sickness and handicaps, and three, even our own temptations to create humility in us. 
So the confession says it this way. I'm just going to read a small section. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. So even Paul, the great apostle Paul, was tempted towards pride, to being conceited. Conceited in the Greek, hupere romai, literally means to be lifted up, to set above, to lord it over someone. Now, um, first, this makes me actually feel a little bit better. (laughs) Paul is boasting in his weakness here. This thorn in the flesh is an example for us, but... Uh, To be honest, I'm thankful that even the Apostle Paul admitted that he is tempted towards conceit. If Paul was tempted towards conceit, then how much more careful should I be in my heart? Second, um, do you believe that you are conceited? That's really actually the first question. Do you believe that you're conceited? Particularly, again, as we think about providence. Who ultimately provides for us? You or God? Part of this thorn in the flesh is that Paul is forcing us to look to God for the strength to continue while wounded. God must be the strength Paul needs or Paul will not be effective in ministry. So again, let me ask you, what are your thorns? What are your thorns? What have you pleaded for God to take away that he has answered no? Or not yet. I've shared this before, but I'd be remiss not to share it again. Um, for those of you who struggle with chronic disease, um, I was diagnosed in 2011 with a chronic illness. And to have a doctor say to me, uh, you'll be on medication the rest of your life, and your disease will get worse as you get older until it kills you, or one day will remove your colon, um, that felt like weakness. Um, I don't enjoy appearing weak in front of you. Uh, But it's important that you see the leaders of this church admitting that we too are weak. A city reformed Presbyterian church, our strong leader is not our pastor. It's not our ruling elders, our deacons, our women's council members. Our strong leader is Jesus Christ. And we have to make much of Jesus. So health has been an area of weakness for me, um, but I've had other areas of weaknesses as well. I want to ask, what is that for you? What is that in your life? Where do you feel weak as a Christian? Do you doubt? Are you introverted? Is it hard for you to go to church because you're afraid that people will talk to you? Do you have a handicap or a chronic illness? Do you feel less successful than other people or maybe less beautiful or attractive? Do you feel less intelligent? Are there evil people who have hurt you? Maybe even evil itself after you. What if 
these thorns are no accident? What if these thorns are the very means God uses to create humility in us? To give us empathy for others. To teach us that our every meal must come from the hand of God. Paul says, I boast in my weaknesses. Look, it's one thing to just bear with a weakness. It's another thing to boast of. I gave a lot of time and prayer this week to the ways I need to do better at boasting in my weaknesses. To be vulnerable with you. I don't enjoy appearing weak. Jesus says, this is the very thing I'm going to use to make you strong. It's counterintuitive. It feels backwards. It's against everything we're taught in society, everything you're taught growing up, everything that feels safe. But it is the nature of the gospel. So how can weakness produce strength? We're going to look at that now, a powerful weakness. Uh, Verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I was reading Charles Hodge, this great Reformed theologian and exegete. uh, And I came to these words where Jesus says, um, My grace is sufficient for you. And Hodge wrote this. He He said, The connection is in favor of the common meaning of the term, My love is enough for thee. These are the words of Christ. He says to those who seek deliverance from pain and sorrow, it is enough that I love you. When I read that, my eyes filled with tears. Because I was reminded in the midst of my own trials, my own suffering, my own thorns, my own temptations, my own struggles, that I have the love of Christ. And that's everything I need. So I just told you that God uses thorns in the flesh to humble you. But what I did not tell you is that you have everything you need to keep going. You have everything you need to live with that thorn. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient. Now, obviously, we don't always believe this or we forget it. But even if you don't believe it or if you forget it, God still loves you. He doesn't leave you. He does not forsake you. And that is a comfort to a weary soul. Do you believe that his love, his grace, is enough? Where in your life are you tempted to think you need more than the love of God? Now, someone may argue against this. They might say something like, well, Paul, you can't eat love. Love doesn't put bread on the table. Love doesn't earn a paycheck and pay the bills. And here's how I think Paul would argue that point. I think he would say, you're absolutely right. Paul's not arguing for you to to not work or to not pay the bills or to not to do hard things that require strength. So what's his point? He's making an argument for the source. He's pushing you to see what is motivating your work. Is it the love of God or is it duty? The love of God or greed? The love of God or prestige? The love of God or conceit? So please don't stop working. (laughs) And start saying, well, God wants me to be weak. I don't need to work. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying that every person ever created, Paul included, has weaknesses. But even the weakness you hate about yourself, God can use for great power. 
So let me say it again. Even those things you hate about yourself, God can use for great power. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. So what if the greatest strength the Lord has given you for ministry is your greatest weakness? The very thing that if people saw it, you would be so embarrassed, so ashamed. What if the thing God planned for effective ministry is your greatest weakness? So I see this all the time. Is it necessary to have struggled, for example, with sexual sin in order to help a brother who is struggling? Uh, No. In fact, it's better for you never to have struggled with sexual sin. But I've seen God powerfully work in the life of one addict to help another addict. You have no idea. The, The myriad of ways God will use you in your weaknesses. If you hide your weaknesses, God cannot use you. Now be careful. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't publicly tell the Corinthians what the thorn is. Still today we don't know, so we want to speak appropriately about our weaknesses and how we share our weaknesses. But think about it this way. The greatest sign we have of an apostle was not their power to heal or to perform miracles or to have visions or revelations, although that was a sign. Their greatest sign is that they boasted in their weakness. So where in your life do you love to appear strong? Where are you hiding weaknesses? Maybe your addictions, your struggles, your failings, your vices, your illnesses. Christians, we are not great at this. I'm not very good at it. Maybe you're tempted to be, you know, shiny, happy people, if you've seen that. There's this quote, and I'll do my best to recite it, but I I can't remember exactly where it's from. Um, But it goes like this. It says, where women cry, men hide their tears. Men keep tears inside, and those tears turn into heart disease and tumors and cancer, and that's why women outlive men. Men are particularly bad at showing weakness because men are raised in a culture which tells you from the time you're a little boy to not show weakness. I'm bad at this. Marriage has helped me some. My, my wife is helpful to me uh, to tell me I've worked enough. You're tired. You need to rest. The Apostle Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. And the language in Greek is actually a little stronger. Uh, Calvin Hodge, others, they translate this word uh, to take pleasure in. I'll actually learn to take pleasure in my weaknesses. I think the ESV changes it because it almost sounds masochistic. It's simply viewing and understanding that what you see as weakness is actually strength. It's understanding alongside Paul that if you are undergoing hardships, persecutions, calamities, insults, weaknesses, then you are strong. So do you know what this means? Functionally, this frees you from fear. All of a sudden, your greatest fears become a godly means of power. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not persecution. It doesn't mean it's not to be wept over or mourned or grieved. But it means deep down you can trust that the Lord is working for good. So I'll just end by reminding you of the the king of weakness, which is Jesus Christ. He's our perfect example. So do you remember what the onlookers said as Jesus hung on the cross? 
In Matthew 27, 40, they said, if you're the son of God, save yourself. And on the outside, all people saw was weakness. But underneath, what was happening? Behind the screen, what they perceived as weakness was actually the weight of sin, the guilt of man, the wrath of God poured onto Christ and removed from all who would believe in him. Jesus was saving the world before their eyes, and all they saw was weakness. Built into the foundation of the Christian faith is God's power made perfect in weakness. So here's the real question for you. Are you too proud? Are you too proud to allow Jesus to work in your weakness? Are you too proud to admit need for help, to admit you need saving? If so, to be a Christian, those things have to change. But for those who lay their weaknesses at the foot of the cross... God promises to dwell with those people, to tabernacle, to save those people. Paul says the power, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As you have received the love of Jesus, so too allow him to work in your weaknesses this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, uh, in, I, I am incapable of fully handing over my weaknesses to you has to be a work of the Spirit. Father, help me, help each person here convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need encouragement. And give us, give us courage, Lord, to be able to share weaknesses with one another, with you, and give us faith to believe that you will use these things for great power, for your good purposes. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.